0: One of the most famous names uh, in, in modern missions, when I say that I mean, I'm referring to somebody who was a missionary over the last uh, 100 years, in North America anyway, one of the most famous names is, is a guy named Jim Elliott. Some of you will know that name. Uh, Jim Elliott died, in fact, as a martyr in 1956 on uh, the shores of a riverbank in uh, South America. He died at the hands of the very people he he was trying to reach with the gospel. He and his friends uh, had decided, very gifted people, in fact, he had gra- graduated from Wheaton College. People thought at that time that he was going to be one of the great, next great pastors, preachers around, kind of in the Billy Graham mold. Uh, Jim Elliot instead, though, chose to go and reach the unreached. And by unreached, I mean like the, the people that, you know, sometimes you see those videos where someone's flying in a helicopter above the rainforest in Brazil and they see these people walking through the clearing and, and then they'd say, oh my goodness, there's people who live there and they've never had any touch with the outside world. That's the kind of people we're talking about. The Alca Indians was who they identified that Jim Elliott and his team uh, decided that they were going to reach. People had never heard the name of Christ. They had never actually really even had any kind of interaction much with, with outside people at all. So in order to make this happen, Jim Elliott and his team flew a, an airplane, a small aircraft, above a riverbank where they knew that these people lived. They put a loudspeaker on the outside of the airplane and they just circled the riverbank. When they'd see people come out, they would speak to them, the very few phrases that they knew from a girl who, from that community, had come out and gotten to know them, and they were friendly phrases, you know, like, uh, we're, here, we're here as your friends, and then as a sign of that, they would drop out of the plane these, bu- these baskets of uh, rock salt and buttons. I'm not, I don't know why the buttons, you know, but apparently that was a very helpful thing for them. They had the information, of course, from this girl that they knew, but rock, salt, and buttons was what the people could really use. Well, after a while, they did this several days, weeks, right, circling this riverbank. They ended up finding that there were uh, things left on the riverbank in response, and so they would land their plane, they'd go down, they'd pick up these these gifts, these baskets. It was local food and uh, hand-carved goods and things like that, and they thought, oh, we're making contact Well, after a while, this went on, they tried to set up a meeting through the loudspeaker, say, can we, can we meet you on this riverbank on a Wednesday? I don't know how you say Wednesday, but Wednesday, meet you on this riverbank. So they landed, they brought a whole bunch more gifts. They laid them out on the riverbank, wanting to give it to the people who are going to come out. Nobody came. So they set up their loudspeaker and they spoke into the jungle toward the direction where they knew these people came from. And uh, they announced the phrases again. We're here to be your friends. We're here. We'll be here. We'll be here until you come. Finally, uh, after about three days, there was a, a young woman and her boyfriend, we learned later, who were the typical rebellious children in the community who said, oh, the rest of you don't want to go. Well, we're going. And they went out, met with them. The boyfriend, when they met, the missionaries, could not keep his eyes off the plane. (laughs) <laughs> what an amazing machine. And so he would put his hand on the plane and he would walk around the plane. And finally, Nate Saint, the, the pilot, said, would you, would you like a ride? Yeah, up they go, right? And this guy's circling. They go over the, the village or the, a clearing near the village where this, this guy recognized it. And this guy was almost climbing out the window of the plane, screaming down at his friends. Look at me. I'm flying, you know. Land the plane, he wanted to go again. Okay, again. Well, some more people, because of this report, some more people came out and they went for plane rides. And then they disappeared for a couple days. We learned later, of course, that what was happening in the village was that they were trying to determine whether these people were actually friendly or not. Or that they were setting them up so they could come and invade the village and kill them all. That suspicious view is the one that won out in the end. So the leaders of the village said, "What we're going to do is to have a preemptive strike before they can come in here and kill us. We're going to kill them." So they went to the riverbank on one the next morning. The missionaries thinking, of course, that everything had gone so well up to this point, right? They got to the riverbank and uh, separated the missionaries out with friendly conversation and pretending to be buddies, and then. From the other side of the, of the river in the trees came hordes of men with spears and clubs and rocks and they speared Jim Elliot to death on that riverbank. His blood flowed together with the waters. Nate Saint was speared to death and clubbed in the head. And there's pictures of their dead bodies uh, along that that river went international. This is before the days of the internet, right? So they were in Life magazine. Most of the people who responded to that story said a similar thing. What a waste. Like, this is ridiculous. They went down there to do this particular. Act, save these people, preach the gospel. Least. Why are they doing this? Was it a waste? Is self-sacrificing missions a waste? Is, now, your answer to that question is going to depart, depend largely upon your viewpoint of the plight of the unevangelized. And by unevangelized, I mean the people who've never heard the gospel preached ever. So so there's a theological viewpoint that you come to that question with. If you believe, for example, the universalist take, which is that in the end, basically everyone's going to be okay. That God in his mercy is so kind and gracious that it doesn't matter whether someone's responded to Christ in this life or not. God is just going to lavish his mercy on everyone, and ultimately everyone's going to be okay. If you believe that, the only real missions that you should be focusing on are the alleviation of temporary suffering, yes? Like uh, poverty or the lack of water or those sorts of things. All very important things, but as a uni- if you're a universalist, that's what mission should be. So yes, this was a waste. Trying to preach the gospel to these people is was a waste. So they're already saved anyway. There are others uh, within the Christian church who say, nah, universal that's not true. And they would call themselves uh, inclusivists. And and what they say is, listen, what people, the the way that God's gonna judge people in the end is he's going to judge them based upon how they responded to whatever light they had, whatever revelation they had. And so if they don't have the revelation of Christianity and they have the revelation of, say, Buddhism, if they're really good Buddhists, we could call them, as C.S. Lewis did, anonymous Christians. So God's going to God's going to save based just upon their response to whatever revelation they had and some will have good good responses and others will have bad. But most people are going to be okay because most people are committed to whatever whatever viewpoint they have, whatever revelation they've been given. And then there's the third view, which is really the most, the most uh, common view in the history of the church, and that is, no, you actually need to believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in particular to be saved. So if you, if you don't have that name, the goal of the church in the world is to get you that name, to send so that you can hear. Does Scripture, you think, give a clear answer to those options? I'm going to argue, actually, that this one does. That Romans chapter 10, verses 12 to 15, gives a clear answer to the question, what is required to happen in order for a person to be saved? What needs to happen in order for them to stand before God justified in the final judgment? I know we've been, in the last number of weeks, been right into all the theology, and it's going to happen again here, okay? Just so you know, so put your little thinking hats on, we're going to dive right in. It's not my fault, Paul's the one who keeps writing this stuff down, right? At some point, you're like, oh, come on, Paul, just tell a story already. But here we go, Uh, here's, here's the outline, or here it is, how how this passage plays out, or Paul's argument, uh, what's required to happen in order for a person to be saved, uh, they need to call on the name of the Lord, so calling. They need to believe upon his name. They need to hear through the preaching of the word, and they need someone to send them someone in order that they can hear. Make sense? So, so calling, believing, hearing through preaching, and sending. You'll see Paul's argument. He links these together. One after another after another. It's a very clear passage of Scripture. Here we go. The first of, the, of these calling. Verses 12 to 13 of Romans chapter 10. For there is no difference, says Paul, between Jew and Gentile. In other words, what I'm about to say, he says, applies to everyone regardless of where you're from. I don't care how you self-identify. In that world, it was two kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. I don't care if you think, oh, I'm blonde, I'm tall, I'm small, whatever. Everyone, this applies to, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For, and he says, I'm going to quote the Old Testament here now, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so how are you saved? You need, to, you need to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to call on the name of someone? Well, um, last week, if you were here last week, here at the Downs Road campus, you would have heard Ezra preach. And, uh, and he he told a story, it's an imaginary story, about moving a piano. So I want to pick up on that idea. If you weren't here, it's okay. Imagine you're moving a piano. Uh, you're going to move it down, down the stairs of your house. And uh, if you don't have stairs, imagine stairs. Okay, so we're going to move this piano down, this, down the, the stairs of your house. You have brought your friends over, right? Or at least those who answered the phone. And who didn't have a better excuse or couldn't come up with one quickly when you asked them to move the piano. So there they are, the least quick-witted among them. and. Uh they, they are moving your piano with you and you're moving this thing down the stairs and you've invited me over, of course you have and of course I've said yes because I'm not very quick-witted so I'm standing there and I, I'm doing what I would do if this actually happened I am actually directing the traffic I'm not going to lift this piano for you so I'm going to stand there at the bottom of the stairs and say, okay, you need to move it down pivot, pivot I'm gonna, you're going to come down the stairs you get to the bottom of your stairs, you know that part where you have to turn to get it out the front door. So there you are at the bottom of your stairs, and you're about to turn this piano, and of course, you know what starts happening every time anyone ever moves pianos, unless you're a professional, it starts to slip. It starts to come out of your hand. You got 15 people around it, and it starts to slip. And in that moment, where it's slipping, and I'm standing over there saying, you know, you're not doing very well. I'm standing... Over there, and I see it slipping and my hands are crossed on my chest. You look at me and you say, Jeff, help! Well, what have you done? Well, you've called on the name of Jeff <laughs> that he might save you. Okay, maybe a better image. Uh, you, you send your children down those stairs. Piano's still upstairs. You send those children down the stairs. You say, son, I would like you to go down to the freezer, and I would like you to bring up the chicken. You do know the difference between chicken and and, and other meats. Yes, son? The chicken is the one that looks pinkish and says chicken on the side. It's right in the front of the freezer. I put it there the other day. Can you go down and get the chicken? We're going to make chicken for dinner. So your son walks down the stairs. After giving you grief, he gucks down the stairs and then he goes into the freezer and he's gone for like three, four, five minutes. And you're thinking to yourself, where did he go? Did he go for a walk around the block? Did he, what, like, what is he doing? Did he fall asleep on his way there? And you hear after five minutes, Mom, Dad, I can't find the chicken. And you're like, the chicken's dry right in the middle of the freezer. Just look at it, open your eyes. I still can't find it, right? And you eventually, of course, have to go down and you have to show him that it's actually right in front of his face, right? Because he's stupid and they can't see these things. (laughs) What is he doing when he's standing in front of this freezer, though, and yelling, Mom, Dad, he is calling on the name of his mom and dad in order that they might save him. The image is clear here. To call on the name of the Lord is to recognize one's inability in the situation you find yourself, namely life. To call on the name of the Lord is to say, I cannot do this. There's no way for me to sort all this out. And so I cry out. This is slipping through my fingers. I can't see forward to accomplish the thing you've called me to do. Help, Lord, help. Call on the name of the Lord. So you get stories about this kind of thing in, in the New Testament. Jesus tells a parable so what does it look like for somebody to be saved and justified? So he tells a story about a, a Pharisee, a really religious guy and, and a tax collector, like the dirt ball of the society, like Nazi sympathizer level dirt ball. And they're going to the temple to worship the Lord. And the Pharisee walks forward and says, Oh God, I am so thankful that I am who I am. Look at me, I'm amazing. I give the right amounts, I care for people the right amounts, my family's in great situation, my house and yard, and everything is perfect. I'm thankful that I'm like me and not like that guy over there, that tax collector, because I can't imagine what it would be like to be him, and everybody hate me like they hate him. So Father, thank you that I am who I am. The tax collector, of course, stands at a distance, says Jesus, and he keeps his head down. He won't even lift his head to heaven, but he pounds his chest and he says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's this tax collector, not the Pharisee, who is going to go home justified. Why? Because the tax collector called on the name of the Lord. Why did he call? Because he recognized that he does not have it together, man. He sees his inability. Oswald Chambers once said that the greatest gift God can ever give a man is the knowledge of his own destitution. That's right. The greatest gift God can give a man is the knowledge of his own destitution because it's out of that destitution that you're going to call on the name of the Lord. My friend Paul... I worked as a pastor with him in New Zealand. Uh, He told me one day about how he came to faith in Christ. He didn't really grow up much in a Christian family, and when he kind of started to come to interest in in the things about Jesus, because there was a guy who was sitting next to him in his classroom when he was in high school, and uh, they would sometimes do these projects, but during the times before the projects needed to start, this guy would strike up conversations and ask him about his life, thinking about spiritual matters, and, you know, what do you think of the afterlife, and like all sorts of stuff. And so Paul would put him off at first, but then after a while, they started to, you know, have more conversations about it. And after about three, four months of this constant kind of intermittent conversation, they... Paul finally opened up and said, I don't know what I think about all this sort of thing, but I tell you what, this Jesus that you're talking about, there's no way that I'm going to give my life over to him. I'm doing just fine. Of course, Paul said at the time when he was telling me, he said, I know God heard that at that moment. and says, really? Let me show you how fine you're doing. And so his girlfriend, like the next day, broke up with him. His, his, one of his parents had a major health problem. His father had lost his job. There's a series of all sorts of things that all happened at one moment and Paul's fine became quickly became unfine. He was in tears for his own life, with the tears for the life of his family. He did not know what he was going to be doing in the future. These plans that he had had for all these years had now been thrown to the wind. And so he said, I ran one night, one night in the dark. I ran a mile. Like just out in the middle of, just my, in my jeans, I was running, and I stopped at this tennis court. He actually showed me where it was. He made me stand in the spot one day. He said, I stopped at this tennis court. I crumbled down on the ground right here, and I finally realized I am not fine. And that if, if I am if I'm held responsible for my future, it is going to go very, very badly. And so in that moment, he said, I cried out loudly, God, help. Yes, call in the name of the Lord. And you will be saved. You ever done that? Oh, I know you come to church all the time, I get that. But have you ever tax collected it, my Pharisee friends? Or just said, I can't do it, Lord, I can't do it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how do you call? What needs to happen prior to calling in order for you to call? Paul helps us here. Verse 14. This is the second part here. You need to believe in order to call. Verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? So calling is a product of belief. In order for an outward call to happen, an inward belief must first happen. You will only call on one who you believe can help, right? So let's go back to our image together with my, uh, you're moving the piano. And I want to add a little piece to it, okay? This time you've invited me and Jonathan, our uh, worship pastor. You guys saw Jonathan earlier? The things we would describe Jonathan as some characteristics are, I mean, he's a really intelligent, bright guy, scrawny, (laughs) right? Right? Good wind would probably blow him away. So so Jonathan, you find Jonathan over and me over, and we're both standing there because we like to direct things. He brought his guitar, we don't know why. <laughs> move that piano. So you move the piano down, it starts to slip out of your hands, and you have this moment where time slows down and you look over, and there I am with my arms folded, and there's Jonathan. You barely see him, right? Because he's sideways. Right? So, and, and the, you say to yourself, help, and then you have to pick a name. Help Jeff, right? Because that's what you're going to pick here. Jeff, you're not picking Jonathan because in your mind you're thinking to yourself, what's it going to help? He doesn't have the capabilities of helping in this moment. Jeff does. You, you send your son. Down the stairs, and he goes, and he's gonna—he's getting the chicken, and there he is. And in the in that moment where he has to call out for help, he does not call his brother because his brother's as dumb as he is, right? <laughs> Who's he? He calls mom. He calls dad. Why? Because mom and dad have the ability to help. Jeff has the ability to help. Jesus has the ability to help. See, yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus in this story. You saw that? <laughs> in order to call on Jesus, you have, to certain, you have to believe certain things about them. There's certain characteristics that he has that gives him the ability to help. So what, what is that? What, what is it that it's about Jesus that gives him the ability to help? Now, there's lots that we could say he's, he's God, Right, He he is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. But Paul, in the verses immediately prior to this one, identifies what it is about Jesus that gives him the ability to help. Just look at at Romans 10, verse 9. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the belief that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. That's, that's what you need to believe about him. That, that language, though, ooh, that Jesus is Lord. Listen, he didn't say that Jesus is my buddy, that Jesus is my friend, Jesus is the butler who's going to come when I call. No, he's Lord. That's, uh, that's slave language, guys. And That's what he's drawing on. That's master and slave imagery that he's playing on. You should not be surprised by that kind of image, Coming from Paul, because if you go to the beginning of the book of Romans, uh, the second word in the book is "this book is from Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ." If you ask Paul, like, what, "What defines your relationship to God?" Well, I'm—he's my master, and I am his slave. The language is all over the New Testament, but the image might be a little bit different than you think. So, so let me share you an image. It's uh, this is an apocryphal story. I'm sure it's an apocryphal story. It was told me when I was young, and I was, uh, I was uh, heard it from a preacher. And preachers love to tell stories that aren't true. So, like here, it's I'm sure it's apocryphal. Okay, it's about Abraham Lincoln. I've shared it before a long time ago. Here, just to give you an idea of what this, what okay, what does it look like to be Christ's slave? What does it mean? Well, the story goes that Abraham Lincoln was uh, so incensed by the slave trade in the United States that he actually had to go and and witness what what went on firsthand at the buying and selling of the slaves when they came off the boat from Africa. So he went to the docks. Lincoln and some of his entourage were there, and they stood at the back of a large group of gathered men, and the men were bidding on the property, the, the meat, the the men and women who were coming off the slave ships. And what they would do is they'd bring these, these slaves off and they would, uh, they, they would, in shackles, they would lead them to the end of, of, a, of the dock and surrounding the dock would be these men. And then, of course, they would ask questions about how big they are, how small they are, how healthy they are, all those, so they could see that. And found sometimes they'd walk up and they'd smack their muscles to see how, how healthy they were. And then they'd start the bidding Lincoln was watching this happen, you know, people being bought and then gathered together and immediately, you know, smacked and whipped and all sorts of things in order to get them to submit to the new, their new boss, their new master. Well, Lincoln saw this one man, actually, this one black, muscular, capable man who had avoided all the emaciation that often happened on those slave ships. You know, people would die, and they'd just throw them over the side of the ship. But he, this guy remained healthy. And they walked him out to the end of the, the dock. And, of course, the crowd gasped, ooh, he looked so strong. Of course, the slave owners were thinking, I could, if I buy him, he's going to be worth two, three, four other slaves. And so immediately when the bidding started, it shot right up. four or five different people bidding. This man, this black man had his head down. And he was, despite his strength, you know, he was quivering. Partly out of anger, partly out of fear. And for some reason, Lincoln's heart connected particularly to this guy. He'd seen the scene long enough, and Lincoln just decided, I cannot let this happen here. I can't, I can't let this happen. And so he he started to bid. He trumped all the others' bids, and then they went higher, and then he went higher, and they went higher, and then, of course, several of them faded away. And it was just Lincoln and this other man in the front, who had already had like six or seven other slaves behind him, who he'd treated viciously up to this point. And they bid and bid, and Lincoln was so determined, he said, I will, I will not let this man win, and he didn't let that man win. He won that, he won that bidding. Sold, they said, to the man in the back. They led this large black man down the steps and through the crowd and the crowd parted like a sea and he came straight to Lincoln in his shackles and his head down, expecting, of course, to be beaten with whips now at this point to make him submit like all the others had. But Lincoln, when the man got to his front, told the guards who were holding him, unshackle him. And they did. The man still wouldn't look. So Lincoln grabbed his chin and he lifted it up to him. And he said, looking eye to eye now, he said to him, listen, you need to know that I bought you to free you. You, you can go anywhere you want to go. You can be anyone you want to be. It's a long pause and this man, as he, as he started to realize what had just happened and that his wrists were free and that he was not being beaten or expected anything of, it, it started to occur to him that this man had bought him now at a price and had now freed him to do what he wanted to do. And he looked around and with tears in his eyes, he, he said, not knowing anyone, he said to Lincoln, he said, well, if you bought me to free me, then I choose to go with you. Now look, I don't know if that's true. But here's the thing about it. Isn't that that's precisely the image of how Christ has treated you? He bought you with a price, he freed you. But and your response to him of willingful servanthood and slavery, he your master, you his slave, is not one you do with a chin down in frustration, and oh no, he's gonna demand things of me I don't want to do. It's one with joy. This one loves me. He's always loved me. He will always love me. He will always lead me into pleasant places. Even though it might not look at it at the time, he will always seek my best, right? Is he your Lord? When you call upon the name of the Lord, is that your attitude? Listen, I I don't know what the future holds, Lord. I don't know how I'm going to get through, but you do, and I will go wherever you say. I will do whatever you call. Calling, believing, but how do you believe? Well, you've got to hear through, through preaching. Verse 14, second part of verse 14. And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? I have a friend in the Middle East. Uh, He's he's, uh, worked as missionary missionary there for a number of years. And he tells a story that you could probably find in several places, not just his story. This is something that's happening quite frequently in the Middle East these days among Muslim, the Muslim population there. Um, My friend rides a bus every day to his office. And uh, after a while, in this Middle Eastern city, he was riding a bus, and uh, the guy across from him was the same guy every day. They apparently went somewhere very similar. They got on at similar places. They rode for like 45 minutes and they got off in the similar places. And so my friend said, well, one day I just decided I'd, I'd sit next to him. He was a little bit uh, put off by it, but they'd seen each other so often, my friend said, I just struck up a conversation with him for one day and then the next day and then a week later. And then seriously, after three or four months, we became actually good, good friends. You have to be really careful the Middle East about talking about Jesus. It's a very slow work missions there. Because you don't know who you're talking to, right? And if the person is in this particular location, this person actually you know, went to the police, uh, my friend and his mission, missionary status would be, he'd either be arrested or he'd just be kicked out of the country. And so he, once he got to know the guy well enough to realize, okay, so it might be safe to discuss some things with him, he finally said to the guy, listen, I, I, I just would love you to have a cup of coffee in my office. I, I come, can you come to my office uh, today? And finally the guy said, yes, I would. So he followed him up into their office, and. Um, they came into the doors. It's an office that this mission organization's had for a long, long time, and my friend went off into the other room to get two cups of coffee, and they're gonna sit down and just have a chat. On the wall of this missions uh, building, on the wall of this office, was this picture of Jesus. Now, you guys might remember the picture of Jesus. It's like the jaundiced, mulleted Jesus, you know, the one where he's very white and flowing hair, looks like he's part of ABBA or some other 1970s rock band, and, and it's, it's on the wall, right? It's been there forever. They've had conversations about how we should take this picture down because Jesus clearly does not look like that, right? So this picture's on the wall, and this guy, this this bus rider, is standing in front of it with tears coming down his face, shaking. And my friend comes out with the cups of coffee, and he's like, whoa, what's going on? Are you okay? And the guy points at it with his quivering finger and says, this man visits me in my dreams. Now, listen, you can, you can talk to missionaries in the Middle East, and you can find out very quickly that this is the kind of work that the Spirit of God is doing there. That through somehow through the dreams of people, the Lord is laying a foundation for, listen now, the gospel to follow. But here's what's crazy. Some people come to that and say, see, God doesn't need a preacher. He is sending the visions to these people. But the reason we know about the visions is because God sends the preacher. This is what's interesting about this, that God has chosen that the means by which he is going to save people is not through dreams and angelic visitation, it is through the preaching of the word. He could have, listen, he could have chose any way to do it. You know that, right? So um, I occasionally like a milkshake, Now I say, I mean, occasionally people look at me and say, yeah, a lot. Like I occasionally like a milkshake. So I'm sitting there and the milkshake, have you ever noticed milkshakes sometimes get a little bit thick? And so you're like, oh, maybe I should use a spoon for this one. Right? So you think spoon, straw, I don't know. And there's others things, maybe I should tip it back. I usually decide, no, I'm going to use the straw for my milkshake. And I start to suck out of the milkshake through the this, through this straw. Now, I could choose many different ways to do it. But I've chosen because I am the sovereign ruler of that milkshake. I get to choose the means by which that milkshake comes into my mouth. God has chosen that the means He could have chosen a thousand different ways, guys, for God to proclaim his message. You could have written it in the sky. He could have said, listen, my people, I'm going to bring them an an angelic visitation, whatever he chose that the means by which he was going to communicate the message of the gospel so that people will believe and then call was through the preaching of the word, the sharing of the message by other people. That's his straw, so to speak. So what you find, this is the question that people often ask when you come off a background of Romans 9, which talks about divine election, right? And you're like, oh, I got my head hurts because there's so many questions that are going on. And chief among them is, if God elects those who are his, if he chooses for his own purposes, then why would we ever go and preach? And in Romans 10, on the heels of this, Paul answers that question because God has chosen the means of preaching to achieve his ends of election. He has a right to choose the ends and he has a right to choose the means toward those ends. And so you find these really interesting passages of scripture, like in Acts chapter 18, where Paul's in the city of Corinth and things aren't going well. He just got there. He shared some stuff with the Jewish people. They rejected it. And now he's gone to the Gentiles. Some of them... Uh, Some of the Gentiles have received it, but Paul's really worried. Should I stick around here because uh, I might get beaten again? Should I go to another city? So in the middle of the night, he has a dream. Here's Acts 18, verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because, why? I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Guys, he did. there were no people in this city who were Christians yet. And yet Paul, God says, listen, Paul, I want you to keep preaching the gospel message in this city because I got a lot of people here. Isn't that magnificent? Here's why it's magnificent. That every time that you and I go into a new people group, into a new place, where new cities, where we plant churches in Maple Ridge or whatever, we can be guaranteed that there's going to be success in the mission because God will make it so. He's got a lot of people there. They're just not here yet. A calling, believing, believing, Hearing through preaching, and then, and then finally, the preacher has to be sent. So, so finally, verse 15, how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You see his links, right? He's really deliberate about it. He's saying, listen, the only way for someone to call upon the name of the Lord and thus be saved is if it all begins with somebody sending that preacher to preach. William Carey is one of the fathers of modern missions. He's one of the most famous missionaries in the history of the world. When he wanted to go out and he wanted to preach the gospel to the unreached peoples around the world in the 19th century, they came and told him, his, his church pastors and his, the elders of his church, when he said, I want to go and I want to preach the gospel to those unreached people out there, his, the pastors of his church and the leaders of the church came and said to him, listen, if God wants to save those people, he can do it by himself. Thank you. And Carrie was like, no, but God has chosen this means. Yes, I agree with you that God has got people in those cities, but God has chosen this means of preaching. And the only way the preacher goes is if we send him. You want a proof text? Romans 10, 15. How can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are those who bring the good news. So the only way people can call on the Lord for salvation is if we send someone to preach to them the saving message. I want to just show you a few statistics, guys. Because listen, if that's true, what I'm saying then, to bring us all the way back to the beginning, what I'm saying is that Paul here explicitly argues that people will only believe in Jesus, they will only be saved if they have explicit faith in him, in Christ, and that explicit faith only comes through the preaching of the gospel message by people who are sent. So the church all along has been right about this. So let's talk a little bit about the need then. Okay, so here's, uh, the 1040 window is, a la- is language that's used among missiologists these days to describe a region of the world. Can you just show that, that picture? There you go. It's that region of the world right there. I should have remembered why the 10 and the 40. It has to do with the latitudes, but I can't remember if it's 10 degrees north, 40, so I don't know. Anyway, it's that area there, largely in containing the Middle East, India, Southeast Asia. In that window, two-thirds of the world population well, that's 4.4 billion people. Among those 4.4 billion people, 90% of them are unevangelized. That means that most have never heard the gospel even once. 85% of those living in that window are the poorest of the world's poor, and half of the world's least evangelized cities are in that, in that window. To give you an idea of how unevangelized we're talking here, in northern Yemen, which is in the window, there are about 8 million people. There's about 4.6 million in British Columbia. Okay, so close to twice as big. Among those 8 million people, they estimate, are you ready for this? There are 20 to 30 Christians. Some of your small groups are bigger than the number of Christians in northern Yemen. So what do we do about that? Ah, oh, they'll be fine. Really? After reading that text? Do you think so? I'll show you what some people are doing about it. Here's, a, here's some people. I'm going to show you a picture of some guys. These guys are actually some, a couple of them I know, I've met. These are pastors in Southeast Asia who work with our Changed Life Center there. It's a ministry that we want to partner with in the future to plant churches. These are church planters. They're from churches in another, re- in another area. They've heard about a people group up in the mountains who don't know the gospel, and so they're going to reach them. Sometimes when they get up there, the people aren't very happy, and they try to shoot them and hit them. They're at risk of having their, their, their lives end on the riverbanks of the world. And they get stuck in the mud all the time with their motorcycles, but they do this according to the missionaries who work with them. They do this kind of thing with smiles on their faces. I've met some of these guys. Uh, Some of them only have three fingers because the the last two have been cut off by the communist governments for preaching the gospel. We'll keep cutting them off, they say, if you keep preaching. And they keep losing them. And you say, why would you keep doing this? Yeah, because faith comes by hearing. They won't believe unless we're sent. I have a friend in... uh, in India, northern India, northern India is one of the least reached places on the planet. There are about 600 million unevangelized people there. 600 million unevangelized people in north India. He's, a, he, he's the director of a Bible college in southern India. And so when he goes into trips into northern India, what he'll do is he'll line up his family, his wife and his four boys, and he will say to them, one by one, farewell, 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 farewell. Because he doesn't know if he's coming back. He gives them hugs. He does this repeatedly. Every year he goes two or three times and he gives them massive hugs because he doesn't know he's going to come back. What he finds when he goes to northern India is usually the militant Hindus know where he's coming and they sit in the front row of the place where he's speaking. Even if it's been kept quiet, they sit in the front row and they bring their weaponry with them. He said, when I talked to him one occasion, he said, "I, I don't know why I'm still alive. He said, I've been shot at and they are awful aim. People throw rocks at me. They do all sorts of this sort of stuff. And you could say to Isaac at that moment, why are you doing this, man? That's crazy. Why are you doing this? Because they have to hear to believe. And they won't believe if we don't send. Why do you think we want to do a a multiplication vision? Why? We put our name in lights? No, because the, the mandate is there. Well, why should I give to it? Come on, man. Because they don't know and they won't know unless they hear. So we have to send. That's what we can do. We can send. Let me finish with with this. uh, David Platt. He's a leader of the Southern Baptist Mission Board these days. A number of years ago, there was a big debate that went around about universalism. Rob Bell published a book called Love Wins, where he argued a kind of universalism. And so in the evangelical world, they're just interrupted into this debate. People were saying, no, universalism's wrong. Look at passage like Romans 10. Platt was in northern India at the time, right? 600 million people un- unreached. And so he made a video. And in the video, he, he talked about this. Here's what he said. He said, the reality is that if we believe everyone's going to be okay in the end, if we embrace universalism, however, it's cloaked, then we're free to live our lives however we want. We're free to sit back as easygoing Christians in comfortable churches because in the end, all these masses are going to be okay. However, if we believe that, the, that people around us, the 597 million people in North India and the 6,000 people groups who have never even heard the gospel, if we believe they're going to an eternity without Christ, then we don't have time to play games with our lives. We, we don't have time to play games in the church. We have a mission that demands a radical urgency. So here's the deal. He said, intellectual universalism is dangerous. Thinking that in the end everything, everyone's going to be okay. But functional universalism is far worse. Living like in the end, everyone's going to be okay. So let's fight them both. He says, in our heads and in our hearts, let's hold fast to the truth of this gospel. And in our lives, let's sacrifice everything we have, our possessions, our plans, our dreams, our safety, our security, and if necessary, even our own lives to make this gospel known among all peoples. Will it be worth it? Even if we die, will it be worth it? Well, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let me pray, Father. Well, I'm humbled, Lord, by the mission that is clearly painted in passages like this, and I'm humbled, Father, by uh, our collective responsibility and sometimes our lack of meeting it. But, God, what a joy it is that you shared with us the opportunity to, to have success here. You have many people in those cities So grant us boldness and risk-taking endeavor for us to see the gospel go forth in our day like never before we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.